0: Uh, good morning. It's uh, awesome to see you guys. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online as well. Um, this is a, a fun day to be together. Um, and our other uh, preaching pastor is Seth Trout. And there's some big news in the uh, in the Trout family, which is that they welcomed Olivia May Trout uh, to the family yesterday. She, uh, man, she's really cute. Uh, she looks a lot like Jay, and so rest assured, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot about Olivia, just like we hear about Jay all the time. Um, so we'll hear about her, but uh, yeah, it's kind of a wild day. They uh, showed up at the hospital at 8. She was born at 8.15. So, uh, you know, childs just get stuff done, you know, that's how they do it. So, but uh, everything, everyone's doing great and recovering well, and uh, we're really, really thankful for just God's grace. Uh, to them. So uh, yeah, if you uh, get a chance to pray for the trouts or encourage them, I'm sure they would love to hear. I don't know if he'd love to hear from you, but he might <laughs> like to hear from you. Um, so yeah, we're, we're thrilled about that. We're going to continue in our study in uh, John chapter 17 today. Um, and as we do, I'm just mindful that, you know, this past weekend was Martin Luther King uh, Day weekend. And I don't know if some of you maybe did what I did. On, on Monday, I went on YouTube and found the the full I Have a Dream speech and watch that and listen to that and uh, man it's just so moving to hear Dr. King talk about that to see that huge incredible crowd there um, and what I learned actually about, about the, the speech um, and a lot of people would say that it's maybe the best speech in the 20th century at least in America maybe around the world uh, but what I didn't know and perhaps what you maybe didn't know is that the I Have a Dream part uh, was not part of his prepared remarks. If you actually watch it, the full speech is about 17 minutes or so, and the first two thirds of it or so, he, you know, is uh, kind of talking about um, America's kind of inability to to cash the check that they've written and that sort of thing. And and you can tell as you watch it, he's kind of sticking to his sort of prepared remarks and he's looking down and he's reading quite a bit. Um, And he gets to this point where he's sort of starting to wrap it up. And uh, someone is sitting nearby him, Mahalia Jackson, and she was um, an incredible gospel singer and one of Dr. King's sort of favorite people and favorite singers. And she had uh, done lots of different events and things with Dr. King. And so she sort of senses that this moment needs a little bit more. And so she shouts out, and you can't hear this in the audio, but I've heard this reported in a number of different places. She shouts out to him, she says, Tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. Because she'd been with Dr. King lots of times when he wasn't just talking from prepared remarks, he was talking from the heart about the dream. And so you see at that point, he actually kind of shifts his notes over and he starts, you know, the, the speech becomes a sermon, and he starts preaching. I have a dream, I have a dream, I have a dream. What a powerful, powerful speech. And it makes me wonder and really gives us the opportunity as we look at this text today, what this text is, is Jesus' dream for the church. In chapter 17, what Jesus is doing is he's praying to his Father. He's been preparing his disciples in chapters 13 through 16, teaching them about how they're going to be faithful in the world, how they're going to carry his name forward. And now in chapter 17, the curtain is lifted, and we just get to see Jesus pouring his heart out to God the Father. And what he does in this last particular section is describe his dream for the church. These aren't prepared remarks, this isn't Jesus praying through an outline, this is Jesus at a gut level, at a heart level, saying, Father, this is what I want for the church. And we know that he's praying for the church because look at verse 20. In verse 20 he says this, he says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples he's been praying for, those who've been following him in his life, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus knows that the disciples who he just prayed about in verse 18, uh, who have been sent into the world, he knows that people are going to believe through their ministry, through their being sent, through their gospel proclamation, through their writing of the New Testament. And so he's saying, I'm not just praying for them, I'm praying for the people who believe through them. Do you know who he's praying for? He's praying for us. Now, last week, he's praying for his disciples, kind of by extension praying for us. This week, he's praying for us. He's praying for the church. Jesus' dream. What is Jesus' dream for the church? Someone was listening to Jesus pray and shouted, Tell him about the dream, Jesus. Tell him about the dream. What would he say was his dream for us? That's what this text tells us. And here's kind of the big idea. Here's my summary of these verses is that Jesus' dream is for us to have unity with each other that flows from unity with God so that the world would believe that he loves them. That's Jesus' dream. Jesus' dream is that we would have unity with one another that flows from unity with him so that the world would believe that he loves them. That's Jesus' dream. Is that your dream? Because a lot of us have a different dream. It's called the American dream. Nice house, nice car, nice family, a little more money than maybe we grew up with, comfort, ease, things the way I like them. Now listen, I love America, and I think that's a pretty great dream. If all you have is this world. But Jesus' dream is a little bigger. And we're going to try to line up today so that our dream actually lines up under and surrenders and submits underneath his dream. Let's pray. Let's ask for his help. Father, uh, we um, are so thankful for our country and so thankful for the many different gifts that we have because of this place we live and um, the standard of living we have. We know that so many people would long for an American dream, and uh, God, we're thankful for that American dream. So many of us are living it. But God, we, we want something even better, which is Jesus' dream. And so God, would we come underneath your dream? Would we see in this text the dream of Jesus, and would it move us to align our lives to live according to it? We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So Jesus' dream is for us first to have unity with each other, to have unity with each other. I want to show you in this passage where we're getting this idea. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one i and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me isn't it interesting i have a dream i have a dream i have a dream one one perfectly one that's jesus dream for us that we would be one. Now, one of the mistakes that we make when we think about unity and when we think about Jesus' desire that we as, the, as people, and that's specifically what we're talking about here. Jesus is not here praying that there would be world unity. He's talking about that there would be unity in his church, in his people. And so if you're not a part of the church, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I think you can find some interesting things here um, as you kind of listen in on what's expected of the church. And uh, so I hope you'll listen in, but you just need to know this really is Jesus praying for and us talking about what is expected of us who say we follow Jesus. And so one of the mistakes that we make when we think about unity is we often think that unity equals uniformity. It doesn't. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity is we all have to look the same, we all have to think the same, we all have to act the same, we all have to be the same. Unity is different than that. Unity says no, there's all this actually God-given difference, this God-given diversity, and in the midst of this diversity, there's unity. Where can we see this in God's uh, reality? Well, Well, the first place we see it is in God himself. God himself is unity in diversity right the father and the son and the spirit eternally existing as one god that's what we believe as followers of Jesus as people who believe the bible is that there is one god eternally existent in three persons father son and holy spirit the father's not the son the son's not the spirit the spirit's not the father there's distinction but there's unity they're not the same but they're one we see the same thing in marriage right husband and wife come together how many of you can testify that husbands and wives are different? Right? Anybody, uh, don't raise your hand too fast, you know, like, but, but yeah, I mean, we're different, right? Like, there's, th- like it's, there's some stuff you have in common, and, and over time, maybe you become to see more over time to see things the same way, but, but, but husbands and wives come together not to be uniform, but to be united, What does God do? He takes two complementary others and he brings us together so that there is unity in that diversity. Well, that's what Jesus wants for his church. He wants us to be united, to be one. Now, you might ask, well, what hinders our unity? Well, a few things. The first thing is sin, Sin hinders our unity. Uh, Sin is when we prioritize what we want over what God wants, when we prioritize what we want over what someone else wants. Uh, We usually kind of put ourselves on the throne, on the center of life. Everything needs to orbit around us. That's what sin is. And when we do that, when we live out of that kind of approach, it breaks things. Now, the biggest problem actually isn't sin, but the biggest problem that creates disunity is is how we respond to sin. And often what we do is we sin and we don't own it. We defend, we deflect, we explain, we blame on someone else. We don't own it. Or we're sinned against, and we have no ability to forgive. All we can do is be bitter. All we can do is retaliate. All we can do is kind of go through things of here's what I'd like to say to that person. And so the problem isn't just the sin that we do to each other. The problem is how we react to the sin. Because here's the thing. If, if I sin against you, but I'm able to own my sin, and really kind of at a heart level go, yes, here, I know what I did. I know how I hurt you. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And you're able to go, yes, I will forgive you. I'll forgive you before the Lord. And since you've owned your sin, I'll forgive you as well. Uh, get this, we don't express forgiveness to other people who don't own their sin. We do express forgiveness to God for when other people sin against us. But, but, but if that can happen, there can be unity. But if we... Get in our corners and we won't forgive and we just get bitter. Uh, So let me ask you this question. I I heard this, overheard this, actually, Vicki Demert, who's our counseling director. I just overheard her talking to somebody the other day in the office. I was like, that's incredible. I'm stealing that. It's a question that she asks herself is, can this person who I'm frustrated with walk through my mind safely? Think of people who have sinned against you, people who have hurt you people who've said the wrong thing at the wrong time in the most insensitive way possible, can they walk through your mind safely? Depending on what's happened to you, you might go, well, no, of course not, given what's happened. But but that's the idea, is that there can be unity when people own their sin and when people forgive. Another reason that that we don't have unity is because of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is just another kind of pride. It's where I assume, well, I'm better than you. I'm above you. If you all were more like me, and we create this distinction, and it's very hard to be unified if I'm just constantly better than you or you're constantly better than me. That's self-righteousness. A third thing that hinders our unity is that what we tend to do as followers of Jesus is we elevate secondary issues into primary status. We treat secondary things as though they're the most important thing, and that creates lots of disunity in the body of Christ. I heard uh, someone, he told this story, he said, I was walking across a bridge one day, and I saw a man standing on the edge of the bridge about to jump. And I ran over and I said, stop, don't do it. The man said, why shouldn't I? And I said, well, there's so much to live for. And he said, like what? And I said, are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? He said, Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God. Wow, me too. Are you Original Baptist Church of God or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? He said Reformed Baptist Church of God. I said, "Wow, me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1879 or Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915?" He said Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915, so I said, "Die heretic scum," and I pushed him off the bridge. I mean, what is wrong with us? (laughs) And yet we do this. There's all this area of agreement. There's all this area of unity. There's all this area where we believe the same things about the same God, and we are part of the same family, and yet we take secondary things, treat them like most important things, and we fracture. Now, this is part of, I just think, and I don't think we think about this, this is kind of part of our DNA especially here where we are. Right? One of the things we're doing in redemption right now, that we have 10 congregations that are part of Redemption Church in Arizona, and each of us are working on what we call a contextual profile, where we try to kind of describe uh, the people we're trying to reach in our community, and kind of what their instincts are, and what they're like, and what their idolatry is, and what their uh, you know, the good stuff, and the bad stuff, and everything in between, and go, if we're going to try to be faithful as we reach them as missionaries, what are some things we're going to have to keep in mind? And, and we're each writing these, and trying to kind of appreciate that there's a lot that's the same across Arizona, but there's actually differences in different communities. Well, one of the things that I think that's really interesting when I think about us and this issue of unity is we're working from a disadvantage. Because think about this. First of all, we're Protestants. What word is in the word Protestant? Protest. Our faith is inherently a protesting one. It is one that's split, and you can argue about why it split and the appropriateness of that. I don't have a problem with the Protestant Reformation splitting from the Roman Catholic Church, but but we have to just acknowledge inherent in the Protestant tradition is protest. But we're not just Protestants, we're American Protestants, right? Our country is founded in revolution, right? And we are overthrowing the king, and don't tread on me, and no one is going to tell us what to do, right? We're American Protestants, and then we are Western Protestants. American Protestants, right? We moved out here to the West where we didn't have to be with all those structures and all that formality and all that junk back East, right? We're Westerners and we're not just Westerners. We are Arizonans, <laughs> which means really don't tread on us. <laughs> be car- Don't break in here. You might, wa- you might not walk out, right? We're Westerners. We're Arizonans and we're in the Southeast Valley. We could live in Scottsdale. (laughs) We could live in Arcadia downtown. We could live in, we know where we're living. We're living here on purpose. Right, and so just everything in us has this like, don't tell me what to do. And if I don't like what you do, well, I'll just get away from you. Right? That's just in us. And so now Jesus is saying, hey, my dream is actually not that you would constantly splinter from each other, but that you'd actually be united, that you'd actually come together. And it's like, this is a different thing. We don't know what to do with this. We don't know how. One of the interesting things that I've experienced as a pastor, I've been a pastor now in some shape or form for 17 years, which is kind of amazing to me in and of itself. What's interesting is 17 years ago, there was lots of moments of division in the church but most of it was about doctrine. It's about what we believe, our convictions. Now, there's as much division as ever, but it ain't about doctrine. What's it about? It's about politics, it's about cultural issues. We've taken our approach to those things and treated them like doctrinal. I mean, like I'm just waiting for someone to get mad at me over a doctrinal thing. Please, I miss those days. <laughs> you know, when you left, because I wasn't charismatic enough or I was too charismatic. I don't know, like just get mad at me for that. But, but we get mad over all this other stuff. And I don't know about you, I, I just feel like, what does that reveal about us? What does that say about what we think or just at an instinctual level, feel, is holding us together. Is what's holding us together our cultural and political preferences? May it never be. And so you go, well, what's the problem? what's, What's the issue? Why don't we have this unity that Jesus is praying for us to have, that Jesus is dreaming for us to have? And at the core of it, what I believe with all my heart based on this text and this whole passage of scripture is the core of it is a breakdown of love. That's what it is. It is a breakdown of love. Love has been this major theme throughout this whole section. I told you, Jesus has been training his disciples in chapters 13 through 16. Now he's praying about this. And one of the major themes of Jesus' training to them, here's how you're going to be effective in the world. Here's what I'm calling you to be. If you want to be a faithful witness, here's how you have to live. What has it been? Has it been, hey, you need to be right about everything? No. No. It's been, you got to love. Listen to this. John 13, 1. This is what starts this whole section. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What's driving Jesus is love. He says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. Wait a minute, what? Love one another, okay, got that. So you mean have positive feelings toward each other? Jesus goes, no, 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 Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Whoa. So, So here's the definition of love that we use here based on that is that love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another person that does not demand repayment or that that person is deserving. Why? Because that's how Jesus treated us. Jesus willingly self-sacrificed for our good when we could not repay him and we were not deserving. And so Jesus says, just as I've loved you, you love one another. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. What's his commandment? Love one another. John 14, 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. John 15, nine, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Fifteen twelve. this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. 15, 17. And here in John 17, 26, the last part of this passage, look at what Jesus prays. He says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is not anything other than a breakdown of love. We've treated love as like an optional, well, if you can get around to it, that might be nice. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I want you to be one. And if you're going to be one, you have to love one another. So, so who are you struggling to love? Now listen, I'm talking, especially in this context, we're talking about people who love Jesus who have a relationship with God, their sins have been forgiven. You will be with them in heaven. And yet, if later today you're at Home Depot and you see them walking down the aisle, you're gonna try to figure out how to get in another aisle. And part of you even thinks, oh gosh, if they're gonna be in heaven. Well, there's many rooms. Jesus said he's gonna build many rooms. I won't have to be near them, right? That's what we're thinking. And, and, and this is Jesus' stream. This is Jesus' heart. And, and here's the thing I know, is at, at certain moments, we realize it. When I started in ministry 17 years ago, it was at a church called East Valley Bible Church that's now Redemption Gilbert. East Valley Bible was founded by a guy named Tom Schrader. And in some of those early years that I was there, there was a lot of those doctrinal divisions that I was talking about, and lots of people left. And people who left, especially who were kind of mad at Tom and felt like he'd sort of lost his way, especially because he'd been really preaching a lot about the importance of love, and they were used to him thundering away about the truth and they thought he was getting soft and, and they left and they were upset. And then a number of years later, uh, Tom's wife Susan died after a seven year fight with cancer. And it struck me, all those people who left mad at Tom all came to Susan's funeral and they started loving one another again. Why? Because it was like, oh yeah, duh, this is what matters. Our, our, our little petty disagreements and preference things. Now listen, this doesn't mean that we all are going to hang out together all the time, but, but Jesus is saying, I want you to have a heart of love. I want you to have a heart of unity with one another. And not about you, but based on our sin and based on our being Protestant American Westerners in Arizona and the Southeast Valley who like our freedom and want our American dream, this just feels really hard that we're going to get on board with Jesus' dream. How is it going to happen? And that takes us to the second part of this big idea. Jesus' dream is for us to have unity with each other that flows from unity with God. This does not flow from ourselves and our good intentions and our good effort. This flows from our unity with God. Look again at this text. He says in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as, so that means in the same way, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as, in the same way as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one." Our ability to love one another flows out of, it's grounded in, it comes from our unity with a triune God. So, so get this, some of you might be going, well, wait a minute, doesn't doctrine matter? Is there any reason to divide over doctrine? Yes, doctrine matters a lot. In fact, what this passage teaches us is that we can't have true Christian unity with anyone who doesn't share our faith in a triune God. Right, You can even call yourself Christian, you can have Jesus Christ's name in the name of your church, but if you don't believe that the Father and the Son are divine and equal and God, then we can like each other, we can be neighbors, we can encourage one another, but we're not Christians together, because you're denying a Christian truth. So we good neighbors, but we aren't going to have Christian unity. We can have Christian unity if we are in Christ, if we have faith in Christ together. And that's where this is gonna come from. This is our story. Our story is that we at some point realized that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that we had lived for creation, and we lived for ourselves rather than living for God, and we were separated from God because of that reality, and at some point, somebody comes in, or the Bible comes in, or we hear a message, or we go to a camp, or we go to a men's one day, or something happens, and we hear the most amazing news in the world which is that despite this distance between us and God, God has bridged the gap. God has come near and he's come near in Christ. And Jesus put on flesh and he dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And he came and he taught and we went, no one taught like this man. No one shows the kingdom of God like this man. And then this most holy, most righteous, most innocent man goes to the cross Because he loved us to the end. And on that cross, he says, it is finished. It's paid in full. There's nothing more to do. And we come to the foot of that cross and we say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I have nothing. Jesus, I'm hopeless, but Jesus, you're enough. And We put our faith and our hope in him not in a cognitive way only, but in a visceral way, like, oh, I was lost, but now I'm found. And and listen, if we've had that experience, then what the Bible says is we are now in Christ. That's the language of so much of the New Testament. You read the rest of Paul especially, he is constantly writing, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him, that we are caught up into this relationship with God, right? There's lots of times where um, Molly and I will be hugging In the kitchen, especially, and we'll we'll be hugging and, you know, kind of trying to get a little moment in the middle of the chaos, and we're holding on to each other, we're hugging, and Hank, who's five, will weasel in, and he'll try to, like, squeeze in between us, and we're like, get out of here, get out of here, you're you're leaving us someday, but we're going to still be together, right, get out of here, like, you're temporary, you know, like, we're, we're lasting, right? Here's what, here's, what this, here's what union is. Union is, is the Father, Son, and Spirit saying, come on in. Get in here. Right? And there's other times we do that. We do a Hank sandwich and squeeze them, right? That's what this is. To get sandwiched in to the love of God. Where this isn't, get this. Don't you see now? Jesus is inviting you into more than just going to heaven. I mean, I want to go to heaven. Better than the other place, right? Like, heaven, hell, I don't know, let me think. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I want to go to heaven, but, but, but it's so much more, right? This would be like you, you, you meet an engaged couple and you say, oh my goodness, wow, this is so awesome. Congratulations, you're about to get married. And imagine they say to you, yeah, it's, it's going to be great. We're going to get almost everything from our registry, You'd be like, oh, wait a minute, what did you say? Like, yeah, I guess you probably will, but is that why you're doing this? So let me ask us, did you marry God for his money? <laughs> no, you didn't. Fearing in Christ, you married him because he's a treasure. You married him because you knew you weren't better than anybody else. You knew him because you had no other hope but him. And so if that's where we all are, then then we're in the family together. And we're not better than one another, and we can't look down our noses at one another. And there's a need for us to own up to our sin because the way we become Christians is by owning up that we have sin. And there's a need to forgive one another because what happens is when we humble ourselves and we repent, God forgives us. And there's this reality that we are now in Christ together. This is God inviting us in. This is God saying, I want you in here. I want to know you. I want to be close to you. I, I saw this, or I heard this story the other day, Paul McCartney. Any of you know of Paul McCartney? A uh, few you young folks, uh, there's a new documentary out about the Beatles, and maybe you can check that out. Uh, but Paul McCartney was part of the Beatles, you know, like world, world, world famous. And one of the things he said, he said, I don't actually allow people to take pictures with me. He said, what I want is to have a conversation. Because a picture is just them getting to know Paul McCartney. But I want them to get to know Paul. And So I'd rather have a little conversation, even if it's just a couple minutes. And that's what God's saying. He's saying, I want you in. Get in here. I want you to know me. I want you to be part of this. Is that what you're enjoying? Are you experiencing that union with Christ? See, if, if you're not experiencing that, if what you're finding is that your life and your treasure and your values and your drive and your priorities are coming from somewhere else, then of course we're gonna splinter over other things. But if our unity is coming out of this unity that we have with God, then we can love one another then we can be one we can drop our other allegiances and we can experience unity in Christ so jesus dream is that we would have unity with one another that flows from our unity with god here's the third part of this big idea so that the world would believe he loves them this is what's at stake Look again at this passage, verse 21, so that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Right, so here Jesus, it sounds like, okay, he wants us to believe. He wants more than that. Look at verse 23, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. This is the heart of Jesus, that the world would know that he loves them. And that's what's at stake when we fracture and splinter and divide over all these lesser things. We're lying to the world about the love of Jesus. Because what we're saying to the world is the most important thing is who'd you vote for? And how do you feel about COVID? And what about justice? Because that's what really matters the most. And that's a lie. When When you stop and you're sane and you're filled with the Spirit, you go, okay, that stuff is all important. But what's most important is that I'm in Christ. I'm forgiven by him. I'm loved by him. I'm adored by him. And so is this brother. So is this sister. We're one. See, what happens is, is when we divide over all these things, we don't just fracture our relationships. We shatter the heart of Jesus. And we shatter the reputation of Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying, I want them to know my love. Now listen, wouldn't we all say, who are followers of Jesus, that the love of Jesus is uniquely better than anything else? Yes. Then we have to display it. And what Jesus is saying, if you want to display it, it's not just about having all the facts right, it's about how we love. It's happened before, where the world saw the unity of the church and it changed everything read about in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Here's the result. awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's unity. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's unity. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, what, what we'll get, l- listen, if we get a chance to talk to people who live in our community, who live on our street, who go to work with us, especially people who are not interested in church, They're not interested in God. Now, mostly what God has to do is is break up the soil in their heart. Unfortunately, it usually takes pain and suffering. But what is gonna get their attention? Because listen, they're not even tempted by our church. On their worst day, they're not knocking on your door going, can I come to church with you? So what's gonna, what might tempt them? What might get under their skin? They go, huh? I've written that off for 50 years, but maybe there's something to this. What might do it? Jesus is saying it's how we love one another. What an invitation. What an opportunity. Jesus says the harvest is ripe. There's lots of opportunity for day by day, people to be saved. Everyone who heard Martin Luther King's dream had that invitation, right? That's what I love about that speech. That's why it's so momentous. Is He's saying, here's my dream. Here's my dream. Do you want to join the dream? That's basically the idea. I mean, it's an implicit invitation. And if you hear it, and you're moved by it, you go, yes, I do want my kids to be judged by the Not the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Yes, I do want a place where everyone, regardless of their background or race, is treated equally. I want that. And so if you buy into that dream, you start to live your life in a way that's aligned with that dream. Here's now Jesus' dream. He's saying, here's my dream for you. Here's my prayer. Oh, God, would you answer this prayer for me? He's saying, he wants us to be one with each other because we're one with him so the world would know. Are you in? Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this word from Christ. Thank you for this prayer. Thank you that John took the time to listen in and write it down. Lord, the main thing that I feel the need to do here is just ask for your forgiveness. It feels like it uh, went great in the early chapters of Acts and just fell apart from there. And because of how much fracture there's been, um, many of us are cynical about this. We hear talk of Christian unity and we kind of roll our eyes. We kind of go, well, it just is what it is. God, forgive us. Forgive us for our lack of love. Forgive us for the hardness of our hearts toward your desire. Forgive us for being like noisy gongs and clanging cymbals, speaking heavenly truths, but doing it without love and gaining nothing. God, forgive us. God, help us to have your heart, to have your passion. And God, we pray that people who right now are not interested at all in following you would see a change in us, And maybe be willing to hear about your love. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.